Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, I want to real quick just praise the Lord for what we saw last weekend, Easter weekend. I've been thinking about it a pretty good bit just as like, man, last Easter weekend for a local church is a little bit of a vision of the possible where the Lord actually gives us a little look ahead to what he is doing. And last weekend was amazing for Mercy Church. I mean, we had, uh, first I want to say thank you for your generosity. We took up a Easter offering to help churches in the country of Turkey who are decimated by the earthquake there. And you guys gave over $23,000 to that offering. Yeah, praise God. That's awesome, man. Sending the gospel further, faster, working with the global church to do it. I love it so much. Uh, but not only do we have the most people by far we've ever had on a weekend here at Mercy Church, we had eight people baptized uh, over the course of Easter Sunday. That's right. Praise God. And we have um, at least one more happening today. Um, man, we had so many people, first time guests and everything else. is just, it was awesome. But the number that kept ringing in my head, of course, was the number one. Because it's that one person that we prayed for for months, that friend or family member that you prayed for, that I prayed for, that came and heard the gospel and had a chance to respond. Man, and we added a couple of services and that took a lot of work on your part to step out and volunteer. And I'm so grateful for it to make those services happen. But what we saw in that vision of the possible is, man, God is after the one. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. And we got to see with all those professions of faith that we saw over the course of the weekend, man, God is still bringing people to himself, one person at a time. And I just want you guys to believe that he's working and in these baptisms, what we're seeing is signs that our Lord really is still working and changing lives. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. It was, it was awesome, y'all. Um, if you're new with us uh, since Easter, I do want to say welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. I want to kind of put this idea in your mind. Um, coming up in a few weeks, May 7th is something we call starting point. Here's the deal. It usually takes you about a month to figure out if a church might be right for you. It'll sometimes take you about five minutes to know that it's not right for you, okay? But if you're still sitting here, that tells me you've made it past that point uh, in our service, right? But it'll usually take you about a month. So I invite you to kind of kick the tires around here, talk to the people that brought you and everything else, and just kind of put May 7th on your radar. You'll hear about all kinds of things going on and you're welcome to check them out. But May 7th is what we call starting point. It's about a 20 minute reception led by our pastors and church leaders where we tell you a little bit more about who we're about. That's what I would put kind of mission, vision, values. We talk it all through. So I'd put that on your calendar. All right. Now here at Mercy Church, we're going through the Old Testament book of First Samuel. So you got your Bible, open it up, make your way over there. If you don't have a copy of God's word, no problem at all. I'm gonna have the scriptures on the screens today and we would love to give you a copy of the Bible. It'll be out in the lobby and get that afterwards. We're gonna be in chapter 26. We're nearing the end of 1 Samuel. Um, and listen, the best thing you can do, like I said, we'll have this, the words up on the screen, but grab a copy of scripture because the best thing you can do is spend time with the Lord in his word every day. 
What we're going to see in today's chapter, in chapter 26, is we're going to see a guy choose obedience to God when unexplainable violence is chosen towards him. This guy is attacked, threatened, hunted, all by someone he loves, but this someone has lost his mind. He feels betrayed, scared, not to mention he's on the run for his life. He's hiding out in caves. And in the middle of that betrayal and crisis, he chooses to entrust his own life and actually even chooses to entrust the life of his attacker. He chooses to entrust it all to God. Here's what I want you to catch today. He doesn't let his circumstance decide what he believes. He chooses, and it's a scary choice. He chooses to let his faith in God be what determines his actions and to be what determines his response to the situation. The circumstances that he's in are simply the setting for applying his faith. The circumstances do not get to decide his faith. And I see in this chapter, a powerful word to us, and I'll give it to you right out front. There's two things that will really press on our faith, crisis and conflict, all right? Crisis and conflict. Both of these things press on our faith like nothing, nothing else. We see them both in our passage today. Those are opportunities to apply our faith, not to decide our faith. Crisis and conflict are opportunities to apply what we believe, not to decide we believe. Look, nothing presses on our faith like those two. I think what we want, I think maybe the reason you're here, you want a kind of faith that carries you through crisis and conflict. But what we often don't realize is that such a faith is not built in the moment. It's built long before. In fact, um, I was thinking about this as we were having family dinner um, Thursday night. You know, the most common thing happened at family dinner that, that happens It happens across all cultures, uh, everywhere, all over the world. The same exact thing happens at family dinner. One of your kids spills a full glass of whatever they're drinking, right? It is universal, okay? So one of my kids spills a full glass, a full cup of Courtney's homemade sweet tea. Y'all, that is the sweet nectar of the South. Uh, You do not want that liquid gold to just go spilling out. But nonetheless, there it goes. And because I'm a preacher, it's just, I'm... Curse to start thinking in metaphor as soon as something happens, right? So it happens, and I started thinking to myself as sweet tea is just covering the counter, right? Um, ice and tea goes everywhere, and I'm going, man, why is sweet tea all over the counter right now? And at first thought, we might think, well, because she knocked over her cup. But that's not true, because I can go get a cup out of the cabinet, set it down on the counter, knock it over, and nothing happens. The reason sweet tea is all over the counter is because sweet tea is what was in the cup. And listen, what I want to talk about today is when crisis and conflict knocks you over, what's going to spill out is whatever that was already in there, right? I want to talk about the sweet tea, okay? I want to talk about what's in the cup. And y'all, some of y'all are feeling empty and you start to wonder whether or not you actually believe anything, and it's because you've never taken time to fill up your cup with God's word, God's spirit, who he really is. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's there for you today. And we're going to see uh, our guy, David, man, we're going to see him take a totally different approach. I want to change the mindset on how we approach 
difficult circumstances because they're either here or they're coming. And instead of those moments being where you decide what you believe, what if the decision was already made and they became where you applied what you believe? When things heat up, this is an opportunity for application, not decision. I need you to get this because the reason some of you have such a fragile trust in God right now is because in crisis or in conflict, instead of giving your heart and mind to what you've already decided, you're trying to figure out what it is that you believe. So when prices keep going up at the grocery store, am I going to get anxious and panicked and angry? Or am I going to apply my faith in God as provider? When my boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with me, is this an opportunity to apply my trust in God and remember that I'm not rejected or alone in him? When sales are down and costs are up at work, when my kids start running from the Lord, when I get fired, when I get betrayed by a friend, when life heats up, what's gonna spill out? I wanna submit to you today that God is so good, so faithful, and so certain that if you'll trust him, these circumstances, crisis, and conflict will be an opportunity to apply your faith and not decide it. And as you apply your faith, he will strengthen it. That's what's gonna happen in that moment is that your faith in him is gonna be strengthened. Hopefully by the end of this chapter, you'll see these, the, these things that can be kind of scary, crisis and conflict actually as strengtheners of your faith. That's what we're gonna see in 1 Samuel 26. They're mixed together crisis and conflict in this crazy life and death situation. All right, I'm gonna walk through the chapter and I'll conclude with three things you can do to build that faith so it'll be ready in times of crisis and conflict. And I hope today is actually here together is decision time so that later it can be application time. All right, here we go. First Samuel 26, verse one. You guys ready? Let's do it. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, <laughs> Some of y'all brand new to church are like, what? I don't understand most of the words you just said. Don't worry, I'm gonna help you out, all right? Saying, David is hiding on the hill of Hekilah opposite Jeshimon. So Saul, accompanied by 3,000 of the fit young men of Israel, this is like the Hebrew bachelorette cast that's like following him around, right? They went immediately to the wilderness of Ziph to search for David there. Saul camped beside the road at the hill of Hekilah opposite Jeshimon. David was living in the wilderness and David discovered Saul had come there after him. All right, let me catch you up if you were with us. Our main focus in the book of 1 Samuel is a guy named David. If you ever heard of David and Goliath, that David, okay? We walked through that a couple of weeks ago, that encounter, and you can go back on our website, grab that. David was anointed by Samuel. That's the guy that the book's named after. He was anointed by Samuel to be God's next king over Israel. Okay, the second king, he will be the second king that Israel's ever had. The current king is a guy named Saul. And the short way to summarize Saul right now is he got some problems, okay? He is, uh, I guess the way I can say it is, Saul is filled with murderous envy towards David. While serving as the king, Saul disobeyed God's express commands. And so the spirit of the Lord that was empowering Saul for his task left God selects David, youngest and smallest among his brothers, to be the new king. Samuel anoints him. The spirit of the Lord has come on David, but Saul is still on the throne. And when Saul finds out that somebody else has been anointed, this little guy, David, man, he gets hot. And what occupies his mind 
is how can I kill David? Well, in our setting today, it appears that Saul has now cornered David, but David's been here before. You go back and you read chapter 24, chapter 24 and 26 are so mirrored to one another, but that's important because we're seeing David, reinforcing what we're seeing with David is that he's applying his faith in this moment of crisis and conflict. And the Lord has already strengthened it before and doing it again. But anyways, David comes up with a plan here to scare Saul away. So he looks for a volunteer who will sneak into the camp with him. And his boy, Abishai, says, yes, without even knowing the plan. I couldn't describe a guy friend better. He's like, I don't even know. Let's go. We'll do it. Fill me in as we go, right? Testosterone rolling. Let's go. So verse seven, that night, David and Abishai came to the troops and Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Abner, that's the commander of Saul's army, and the troops, remember 3,000, right, are lying around him and they have made it in right to where Saul is, like the epicenter of this whole big camp, right? And you can imagine what happens next. You have to hear it in like a whisper, like army crawl and whisper kind of thing, right? Abishai said to David, today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust that spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. Look, they, it's incredible. They make it. And so of course his buddy thinks, look at the sovereignty of God. He has allowed us pretty much miraculously to make it all the way to the middle of the camp. It took varsity level sneakiness to get here. Just say a word, man. And I'm gonna throw down God's justice right here and now. Y'all, this kind of makes sense to me. I mean, David's been in this situation a few times. He's got to be getting tired of this. Saul keeps chasing him, trying to kill him. Many times before this, David's been attacked by the guy that's on the throne that belongs to David now. To end it all right here, seems like it makes sense. Be good for his situation. He gets the crown, no more being hunted. I want you to hear me in this. There is a way often that looks godly. And this is often the case in conflict or in crisis. Certainly everyone will understand, right? This path looks like God's will. And especially if you're in church for a while, you can start developing some real spiritual language for doing whatever you want to do. You can start listing off everything that validates your desires as signs from God. Just because you got a sign and a verse does not mean God is calling you to something. That's called proof texting. And it's very dangerous. Proof texting is, <laughs> this is claiming one verse you read proves God is approving you to do something. This is not in his will, All right? There's the humorous examples of, you know, especially young guys who, there's this guy who was deciding, he's like, man, where should I move? And he just flips open his Bible. Revelation 3, 7 says, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. <gasps> I must move to Philadelphia. I got a text. I kind of wanted to go there anyways, right? Or the person that maybe a little more serious sits in my office and says, Psalm 37, four, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desire. So I'm going to date that non-Christian because I've been trying to, Pray to the Lord, and I really like that guy, and he asked me out. So therefore, the Lord must be giving me my heart's desire. And Satan is like, that was just too easy to convince you of that. No, 
Y'all, there's a thing here where it seems like God has delivered Saul so that David can get his vengeance for all the hardship that Saul has caused. But David has already decided what he believes long before this moment. This isn't a decision moment for David. This is an application of faith moment for David. Look at verse nine. David said to Abishai, don't destroy him for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent. Here's what's going on. David knows God himself selected Saul to be king. God commissioned Samuel to go anoint Saul as the first king. Whole big old ceremony happened and Saul's been on that throne for a while. And David is not about to be the one to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed just because the circumstance has changed. The circumstance does not change his faith. Because for David, that would be the same thing as lifting a hand against the Lord's very word. God said Saul was king. Who is David to undo what God has done? His faith, look at this. His faith in God's word, his submission to God's word has created a boundary that he's not going to cross. And when we're, y'all, when we're settled on our faith, our faith starts to do this for us. It guides us. Our eyes are open to the spirit of God who gives us direction and guidance in the form of application of God's word that may not make sense to the world around us. Like I remember when Courtney and I were newly married and things, as is common when you're newly married, uh, they were really tight financially. But we knew God called us as believers to tithe our money. The Old Testament tithe, we know is 10%. Your first 10% go to the Lord. And we're sitting here as New Testament Christians with more to be thankful for than they did in the Old Testament. So the tithe 10% was a floor for us, not a ceiling. And we're like, all right, let's start tithing. And we start tithing and then we get pregnant. Like again and again, just kept getting pregnant. And we're like, man, what? And there's a, there's a, a human wisdom of the moment says, oh man, maybe we should change our mind about giving because look at the circumstance. We said, no, let's apply our faith in what we know. God is provider and God has called us to tithe. And what happened? Our faith was strengthened as we kept on tithing and having babies on one income. And the Lord kept providing. Now I'm not the hero, the Sheldon's certainly not the hero, but I'm grateful we didn't let the circumstance decide our faith, but instead was an opportunity to apply our faith. And y'all, it hasn't gone away. We've still got those kids, right? They cost more now, you know? Still an opportunity. But years of trusting him have strengthened our faith in his provision. The point is David is not changing his mind about what God has said just because of the moment. He's applying it. But that doesn't mean he's ignoring what Saul is doing. He just knows that some things are the Lord's to handle, not his. Look at verse 10. David added, as the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. What he's doing right there is he's remembering chapter 25, where David in his rage was about, he was about to strike down a guy named Nabal, whose name means fool. Nabal's wife, Abigail, intervenes and begs for mercy. And shortly after David showed mercy to Nabal the fool, Nabal is just struck down dead by the Lord. And David wasn't involved in it at all. It was a warning for David. And for David, that was proof. The Lord can take care of David's enemies without David's help. So David's looking at Saul, remembering Nepal, thinking not, the Lord will take care of him. Verse 11, however, 
as the Lord is my witness, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. So instead, <laughs> instead, because you got to be thinking, his buddy's like, well, then why are we here? You know, that's got to be the question that he's asking. So David says, here's the plan. Take the spear and the water jug by his head. Let's go. In other words, I know, I know it might seem like God's provision, an opportunity to kill the enemy right there, but God's word says this man was king. God anointed him. So if God wants to take him down, I think he does. God's going to do it. Man, his obedience to the Lord is not up for discussion or decision right now. He decided long time ago, he's not going to strike down the Lord's anointed ever. This is just another opportunity to apply that faith. Verse 12. So David took the spear and the water jug by Saul's head. They went their way. No one saw them. No one knew and no one woke up. They all remained asleep because, look at this, see the sovereignty of God? Because a deep sleep from the Lord came over them. The Lord is blessing David's obedience to his word right here. Well, they get a safe distance away. And of course, once they get a safe distance away, then they start shouting. Verse 15, David called to Abner. That's the commander, Saul's commander. (laughs) You're a man, aren't you? Who in Israel is your equal? So why didn't you protect your Lord, the king, when one of the people came to destroy him? What you've done is not good as the Lord lives. All of you deserve to die since you didn't protect your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Now look around. Where's the king's spear and water jug that were by his head? If you weren't here for David and Goliath, though still pretty new at trash talking, he has game. All right, that's what you're seeing with David right here. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and asked, is that your voice? My son, David, I mean, David is Saul's son-in-law. It is my voice, my Lord and King, David said. Then he continued, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What crime have I committed? Now may my Lord, the King, please hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. In other words, Saul, what is driving you right now? Because if it really is the Lord, I'll repent right now. I'll offer a sacrifice. That's the form of repentance, that offering he's talking about. I'll do it right now. But David knows that's not the deal at all. He says, but if it is people, then may they be cursed in the presence of the Lord. For today, they have banished me from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord. David's been out living with the Philistines, saying, go and worship other gods. So don't let my blood fall to the ground far from the Lord's presence. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, like one who pursues a partridge, in the mountains. What's going on? I thought we were close, Saul. And in betraying me, you've banished me from everyone. I'm living as an outcast of the Philistines. I've been living there. And even though I'm living out there, you're still chasing me. And I had the chance to end it all, but I didn't. Well, in response, unpredictable Saul has a little moment of what seems like clarity. He says, Saul responded, verse 21, I've sinned. Come back, my son, David. I will never harm you again because today you considered my life precious. I've been a fool. I committed a grave error. Okay. Now this is a good thing Saul says, but all right, I'm really glad to hear. Saul's done this before. And what happens next is actually a really good lesson for some of us. You can resolve conflict with someone without returning back into their situation. Just because our conflict is resolved, don't mean I got to go back to your crazy, right? I ain't got to go back into your unpredictability. 
Conflict resolution is about moving, and that ain't the, the whole like point of this sermon, but this is a really good case study here. It's about moving forward in a new, healthy, normal, not going back to the way things were. And David knows Saul ain't right up there. He knows another moment of rage, another spear is coming that's gonna fly right at him. Or maybe he even just knows these words themselves are hollow. Either way, resolving conflict doesn't require you to go back to the way things were. David says, verse 22, David answered, still way over on the hill. Here's the king's spear. Why don't you have one of your young men come over here and get it? The Lord will repay. This is where David cites the character of God. It's pretty important. The Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed you over to me today. Just as I considered your life valuable today, so may, not you, may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all trouble. In other words, the application of my faith is to trust the Lord with your life. And the application of my faith is to trust the Lord with my life. You're the Lord's anointed. So I'm not going to harm you, but I also know you better than you even know yourself. So Saul said to him, verse 25, you are blessed. These are the last words, Saul. We've been following these two for a while. This is the last words Saul ever speaks to David. This is the last conversation they ever have. You're blessed, my son, David. You will certainly do great things and will also prevail. Then David went on his way and Saul returned home. Amazingly, the Lord allows the final words David hears from this father-in-law tyrant enemy is a blessing. What kindness from the Lord. Now, I want to talk about takeaways from this passage of scriptures. Kind of wild. What is God showing us about how we apply our faith? Remember we said at the outset, crisis and conflict are opportunities to apply your faith, not decide your faith. So what do we need to do to build a faith that is decided and ready to go be applied when these things hit? I'm gonna give you three things. The first one, and it's all just what I see in here. The first one is y'all to apply our faith in times of conflict or crisis. We need to know who God says he is. We need to know who God says he is. Well, it's a very simple question for us today and a simple point of application. Do you know who God says he is? Not, <laughs> what do you think God is probably like? Not that. In fact, there's nothing worse for your faith than empty, unfounded conjecture about what you think God might be like. Sorry, I just don't know when someone's imagination about what God might be like has ever helped anybody. I can't help think of the scene from Talladega Nights with uh, the dinner scene with Riggy, Bobby, and Cal Norton Jr. Where Cal Norton's like, I like to think of my Jesus like wearing a tuxedo t-shirt, you know? Because, you know, it means he's formal, but, but he's here to party because I like to party. I like my Jesus to party. Like, that doesn't help anybody. But this is what a lot of people do with God. They don't engage his word. They just pontificate on what he must be like because it's what they would like him to be like. That's creating an image of yourself, not an image of God. What I'm saying is, do you know what God has said about himself? Do you know his character as revealed in his word? Because the more familiar you are with him, the more you'll apply your faith in him when conflict and crisis hit. Verse 23, what's David doing? Recalling the character of God. 
the Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. What comes out of David is what was already in the cup. David knows God. He knows he's faithful and his knowledge of the Lord leads to his action. Conflict and crisis just expose what's in the cup. So for David, multiple times, what we see inside his head and his heart is not anything about himself or about Saul. It's about the character of God. I know God. I know what God says about himself. So I'll think first on his, when the circumstance hits, my mind's going to go to God. Isn't that a fascinating change of approach to a situation? My girlfriend breaks up with me. Okay, who is God? That's my first, who is God? My bills go up. Okay, who is God? He's unchanging. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. I know he is a provider. I know he is loving. I know he is just. Now, am I saying the circumstance doesn't hurt? No, of course not. But in that moment, the character of God keeps me from vengeance and keeps me from despair. And what starts to happen is people and situations who are unreliable get smaller in your heart and mind. And God, who is very reliable, gets bigger. And then your actions just follow. Here's the second thing you need. To apply your faith in conflict and crisis, you need to know who God says we are. You need to know who God says you, uh, who God says he is, and then who he says we are. Man, there is no more lively conversation in the world right now than the one swirling around identity. But do you know who God says you are? Do you know what God says about you? It's amazing. It's something we should never get over. You were created in his image to walk with him. You were created to work and flourish in his world. You have purpose and value and dignity and worth all in Genesis chapter one. You're a sinner who ran away from God, but you are loved so much that he has offered you forgiveness of your sin through his son, Jesus. You are saved from your sin. You are called son or daughter in Christ. You have full access to the throne of grace through his Holy Spirit. By the way, you have the Holy Spirit who walks with you. You have eternal life. Death is not the end for you. You have purpose here in this life greater than anything the world can offer, Ephesians 2.10. You have community through his church to feel and experience that deep truth that you are never alone. That's who God says you are. Is that identity rolling in your heart each morning? If you're in Christ, you're a child of God and nothing can take that away. When you wake up in the morning and read about that and thank the Lord for that, Jesus is alive and because he is, I have new life. Man, then that's what fills up the cup and Jesus is gonna be what spills out when crisis and conflict, which will hit when they hit. Last thing I'll say in that lane, to apply our faith, In times of conflict and crisis, we need gospel memory. We need gospel memory. We finish focusing in on something we see in David. David recognizes and applies something the Apostle Paul is going to flesh out um, later and give the following words to over Romans. He's going to say, do not repay anyone evil for evil. This is the Apostle Paul. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. And then this last verse, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Don't avenge yourself, leave room for God's wrath. That's what David does. It's what God calls us to do. Instead of vengeance, he calls us to love. He calls us to forgiveness. Because y'all, if we give into vengeance, we ourselves will be conquered by evil. That's how evil works. It eats you up from the inside. It has an appetite that's never satisfied. The only way to conquer evil is with good. That's what Dr. King said. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I say this to say, we need to keep God's forgiveness and mercy directed towards us right in the front of our heart and mind. We need to cultivate gospel memory so that the minute crisis or conflict hit, especially conflict, the minute it hits, our hearts can shout, remember how God forgave you. Do you remember it? Do you remember? This is why baptism is such a big deal for us. Because it's a moment that we look back and say, man, I remember that moment as a key point where uh, no matter what has gone on in my life, I can look back and say, man, that was a time where I celebrated that God has forgiven me. My old life is gone. I have new life washed clean by the blood of the lamb, new life in Christ. That's who I am now. I didn't deserve it. It cost him greatly. And my soul right now, I need to remember it. I need to be drawn back to the memory of the gospel in my own life. When's the last time you just wrote down your testimony? Man, remember what God did for me. I remember how God led me to himself. This is Ephesians 4. Be kind. What's the result as a church? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. How? Gospel memory. Just as God also forgave you in Christ. Only one who has good gospel memory can truly forgive. Only one who has good gospel memory can walk through crisis, not in despair and anxiety and insecurity or anger. Be like, no, I remember the miracle that I am in Christ. The Lord who did not abandon me then won't abandon me now. I didn't deserve his grace, but he gave it to me. I deserved death. He gave me new life. I deserved hell. He gave me heaven. We need that kind of gospel memory and we decide it now, not in the moment. So in the moment, what spills out is the hope and love of Christ all over the situation and circumstance. And then he strengthens us for the next one. I wanna lead us in just a brief time of response to this, give you a chance to respond to what the Lord might be doing in your own life. Maybe it's in crisis, conflict, whatever. I just wanna lead us at both of our campuses in a brief time of prayer. If you would get into a posture of prayer, just Bow your head and let's respond to the Lord as he's leading and I'll kind of guide you in this. Some of you, I know you're, today's decision day for you. You decide today, yes, I'm choosing Christ. I'm choosing to place my dependence, my faith in what he did for me. And maybe you're in the midst of a conflict, in the midst of crisis right now. You say, God, help me. God, I'm choosing in this moment. He's given you this moment this morning 
to draw your heart back to him and settle your faith on him who is sure. And then we'll let the crisis or let the conflict be the moment to apply what you know about him. Christian, just draw your heart back to the character of God, who he is and who he says you are and thank him. Thank you, God, for your love for me. Just thank him. If you're not a Christian, receive his forgiveness now. Do not delay. That's why he brought you here today. So you can make that decision now that will carry you through that crisis or that conflict. You just receive that God, I believe that I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I need the forgiveness Jesus won for me on the cross. And so this morning I receive it. Thank you, God for dying in my place. Thank you, God, for saving me. Father, we love you. We are so grateful, so grateful for the hope that we have in Christ, the certainty that we have in Christ. Would you carry us and may our faith as the people of God be strengthened throughout our week as we walk in the certainty of your love for us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.